It's uh, fun to see them. Uh, we had an opportunity to have them in our house church on Wednesday night. Had a couple other house churches join us. Also this Wednesday night, uh, if you didn't have a chance to come this past Wednesday and you'd like to have a little more time with John and Yuri, uh, you'll have an opportunity this Wednesday night at Dave Troutman's group, uh, which meets at 7 p.m. Uh, at Dave's house. Is that when, that when, they, that when they start? Huh. 6.30 this week for potluck. You get to come and eat with them, too. So anyway, just encourage you, take advantage of these opportunities to be with uh, John and Yuri and hear more about their work in Japan. Those of you who were here a couple weeks ago remember, and if you don't, we'll just give you a little refresher. A few weeks ago we looked at the life and the ministry of Jeremiah. We noted that Jeremiah spoke very clearly the word of God, but his generation was one that wouldn't listen to him. And we talked about how we can kind of relate to that in some ways. They experienced Jeremiah's generation experienced the judgment of God as a result. We also looked at how we're uh, like Jeremiah in some ways, but not in other ways. For example, we may not be called to be prophets in the same sense as Jeremiah was, but we are all called to be his witnesses. What's more, God has given us the power of his Holy Spirit, and he's given us a new and better covenant to proclaim, a better, fuller message of grace and mercy than Jeremiah had to speak. Because of the sins of the culture which Jeremiah was trying to reach with God's word, one of the things that Jeremiah had to display throughout his more than 20-year ministry was this. Courage. What makes a king out of a slave? Courage. What makes the flag on the man? Well, and you're kind of missing it. Some of you can recite this by memory. Courage. What makes a king out of a slave? Courage. Okay. Cowardly lion's talking about courage here. What makes the elephant charge his Remember must? that? In the misty courage. mist or the dusky what, dust. Why does the muskrat guard his what must? Makes the courage. Muskrat guard what his puts the must. hot and hot and tot? Courage. courage. What makes and the, at the very end, wonder. he's saying, what do they got that I what ain't got? The dawn come they look at him and they say, courage. Courage. What makes okay. the hot and cut so high? What like puts the ape in apricot? What do they got that I ain't got? But even with courage, courage folks, you could say that again. We're still challenged in our interactions with the world because of the rapid downward spiritual and moral drift of our culture. Near the end of the message just a few weeks ago, we looked at four key ideas. And we hope that those four key ideas would help us as we engage our culture. We asked ourselves, for example, at the outset, we asked ourselves, how much do we really care about the lost? Do we care that there are people around us in our own circles of influence going to hell? We reminded ourselves that evangelism essentially includes not just that moment of salvation that we all long to hear in people's lives, to see in people's lives, but also the very critical cultivating and planting and watering and nurturing that must take place before a soul is brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We remember that all of us have relationships with people who are somewhere along that line, that continuum, if you will, leading to salvation. And we also recognize that salvation is God's work, it's not ours. 
We cannot save anybody, yet we can and we should be tools that God uses to bring the lost into his kingdom. And finally, we looked at something that we didn't fully explore, but that's the idea that love is the greatest apologetic. Do you know what apologetics is? Anybody know what apologetics is? It's not you're saying you're sorry. You know, that's the first thing we'd think because it sounds like apology. But it's not you're saying you're sorry for anything. For our purposes this morning, apologetics is a type of engagement with people dealing with the defense of or the reasons for the validity of our faith, Christianity. So when C.S. Lewis says that love is the greatest apologetic, he's saying that agape love, the unconditional kind of love spoken of in Scripture and modeled by Jesus himself as the kind of love with which he loves us, is the greatest witnessing tool that we have. It's a door opener, isn't it? It's the kind of love with which he calls us to love each other. Think about this. What's more attractive to people than genuine love? Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, some of you may remember the song, They'll Know We Are Christians by Our Love. Some of you old-timers especially will remember that. That song says to me that when we love one another unconditionally or when we love unbelievers unconditionally, not expecting them to change as a precondition for our love and our acceptance, remembering that we too have been saved from our sins by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, what we're doing when we do that is we are adorning the gospel. And when we love our fellow believers unconditionally, holding fellow believers, yes, to a higher godly standard of behavior, yet lovingly accepting each other as works in progress while we struggle in our respective walks with God, when we love like that, we are revealing our faith in a very practical, tangible way that speaks louder than words alone can speak. Now, I've hardly said anything controversial here, and it's likely most of you have heard these kinds of things before. But our test and our challenge is how does this work in the practical day-to-day? Our goal is to love people in a genuine, authentic way. Our challenge is that the world's idea of love is different than biblical love, isn't it? Our, the world's idea of love is but a squishy, sentimental imitation of the authentic love that God calls us to as believers. And because of that reality, the irony is that we believers are more often than not seen as unloving. We're seen as even hateful rather than as loving. Haven't we seen that? Isn't that what people accuse us of? Now, I have to admit that some of that is our own fault. Yes, in fact, we might tend to think that it's loving to encourage sinners to quit sinning rather than to encourage them to join their fellow sinners, which would include you and me, at the foot of the cross. So we've not done everything right. When we send missionaries to foreign tribes in Africa or New Guinea, we don't expect those tribes to immediately embrace evangelical values, do we? We understand the missionary must first demonstrate love, 
show God's goodness, build relationships, learn the language, and invest in individuals and leaders. We expect that the missionary will be misunderstood and likely hated or suspected. Successful evangelicals will learn to take the same biblical approach to the foreign tribes now growing in the U.S. For too long, we have expected United States non-believers to behave and believe like Christians. When they've acted like pagans, we have at times attacked them for being precisely who they are apart from Christ. This has brought us into distracting conflict with a number of United States tribes, including the broad tribe of Americans who self-identify as homosexual. Don't we see that? Haven't we seen that? Can we admit that these things are true? Now, in a moment, I want to read our primary text for this morning. So you might want to read along. If you have your Bibles, we'll, have, we'll be going to Romans 12 here in just a minute. But as we read together, I want you to be thinking about these cultural issues that we face. I want you to be thinking, for example, of the whole homosexual agenda, which is the big thing kind of out there these days that many Christians are concerned about and how Christians who attempt to hold firm to what Scripture says about what is sin are now widely perceived as bigots. The perceptions that Christians are against gays and lesbians, not only objecting to their lifestyles but also harboring irrational fear and unmerited scorn toward them, has reached critical mass. The gay issue has become the big one, the negative image most likely to be intertwined with Christianity's reputation surfacing a spate of negative perceptions, judgmental, bigoted, sheltered, right-wingers, hypocritical, insincere, and uncaring. Outsiders say our hostility toward gays, not just opposition to homosexual politics and behaviors, but disdain for gay individuals has become virtually synonymous with the Christian faith. Sad but true, folks. That's sad but true. And I don't think there's anybody here who hates homosexuals. And if you do, you need to hear this message this morning. So think of these kinds of things as we read together from Romans 12. And we're going to start with verse 9 of Romans 12 and read through verse 21. Be thinking of these things in the context of what we just looked at. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This brings us to the primary issue we face. I think most of us have been in circumstances, many of us have been in relationships that include our desire to love the sinner but hate the sin. And by the way, let's think about that phrase for just a minute. That's a phrase that we should probably now keep to ourselves because it doesn't work anymore. It's an unconvincing apologetic to most unbelievers anymore. That's because, especially with this issue of homosexual behavior that we mentioned, but also with other kinds of sins, it's becoming all too common for the sinner to find a sense of identity in the sin. In other words, it becomes who they are. So to say to someone, I love you, I care for you, but I hate your sin of homosexual practice or something else, is to say to them, at least this is the way they receive it, that you hate them. Because their identity is so wrapped up in this behavior that, again, it has become who they are. Nevertheless, despite this truth, I believe that the idea of loving the sinner and hating the sin is still a very biblical idea. Who can quote the verse that says that? Anybody here can quote the verse that says that? Of course, there is no verse that uses those precise words. But we just read a key verse that addresses this idea. It's on your bulletin cover this morning. It's Romans 12, verse 9. And it says, love must be sincere. There's the love part. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. This verse lays the groundwork for all that follows in the passage that we just read. Loving the sinner but hating the sin is among the hardest responsibilities that we have as believers. It's hard because it forces us sometimes to love sincerely without hypocrisy. It's hard because it sometimes forces us into a confrontation that we'd rather avoid. It's especially hard because it's very difficult, as we noted, to communicate love while also communicating a rebuke or a correction. It's also hard because, as verse 18, which we just read, recognizes, we can do almost everything right, speak in gracious love, and still have animosity between people. So let's start with this idea. It's, we've already noted this briefly. Loving the sinner but hating the sin may look different depending on whom we're loving. If it's a fellow believer, there are times, not always, but there are times, there may be times when the most loving thing we can do would be to call that fellow believer to repentance. That's kind of where Jeremiah was. You remember Jeremiah a couple weeks ago. He was speaking to God's covenant people. He would point out the sin. He was calling it what it was. He risked the confrontation and he risked the consequences of that confrontation when people didn't listen to him and receive what he has to say. Now the who, what, and when of this kind of confrontation between one believer and another is another sermon altogether. We're not going to get into that this morning, but the point I want to highlight this morning is how we may love the sinner and hate the sin differently based on whether or not we're loving a Christian who's sinning or an unbeliever who's just doing what comes naturally. Think about that. We're not dealing with a covenant people like Jeremiah was when we're relating to unbelievers. When we're relating to unbelievers, as we noted just a few minutes ago, 
We can't expect those who are not in Christ to behave as if they are in Christ. The Word tells us that we, that's you and me, folks, and I'm assuming all of us here this morning are believers, but the Word tells us that we were slaves to sin apart from Christ. That means people who are not in Christ are slaves to sin. They're just obeying their master. They're just doing what comes naturally. So perhaps we need to be a little bit more careful with unbelievers. Perhaps rather than feeling any need to address their sins specifically, our efforts should be focused on loving them genuinely by building a relationship with them, even serving them when appropriate. And through that sharing of life, earning the opportunity to point them to the only one who can really effectively deal with their sin problem to begin with. They can't do it on their own, right? Isn't that what the gospel's about? Now, admittedly, this can be complicated. I mean, just saying these things doesn't make it so. It's complicated. It's not easy. You're dealing with emotions. Like we talked about, you're dealing with identity. But the point remains, loving a sinner who's apart from Christ requires a love that may look somewhat different in its practical outworking, from the otherwise very same agape love with which we love our fellow Christians. Now, Romans 12.9 says that love must be sincere. The New American Standard says love must be without hypocrisy. The New Revised and the ESV say that love should be genuine. Isn't it interesting, though, that Paul put these two imperatives so closely back to back in this very same verse, love and hate, good and evil. A closer look at this passage begins to open up these ideas. In our culture, for example, one of the worst things that you can be accused of is being a hypocrite. It's about the worst thing anybody can say about you. Authentic love is the title of this morning's message, and authenticity, genuineness, sincerity, no hypocrisy, is an incredibly important value, especially for the millennial and the younger generation. I think especially young people have very well-defined sincerity detectors, don't they? Haven't we seen that? Even a whiff of insincerity or hypocrisy is a major turnoff, and you have lost your hearing from them completely. But honestly, if you think about it, all of us appreciate sincerity, don't we? It's certainly a value that transcends time and generational sensibilities. Why else would we all hate the process of buying a car? Huh? Does that that car look like a Porsche to you? It doesn't look like a Porsche to me. Now, the stereotypical car salesman just reeks of insincerity, doesn't he? That's why the stereotype is so powerful. Huh? So when we have a car buying experience that doesn't include that stereotype, it feels very refreshing to us, doesn't it? It was important in biblical times as well. Maybe it was important on the chariot lot instead of the used car lot. The NIV translates the word sincere in verse 9, while some other versions say without hypocrisy. And that's more literal translation of the original language. The original language is the word from which we get our English word hypocrite. It means essentially acting. You're playing a part. It's a pretense to being uh, what one really is not, especially the pretense of trying to show that you're a better person than you really are. One of the things that Jesus 
criticized most fiercely was hypocrisy. Remember that? Those who were guilty of judging others' faults and ignoring their own. Why was he so hard on the Pharisees? You know, if we look just at surface value, what the Pharisees did, they were doing all the right stuff, weren't they? But they were hypocrites. They were doing the right things, but their hearts were dark. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites because of the conflict between their external actions and their internal attitudes. Now, Paul knew that love could become just words. He knew that love could be a pretense. He knew that love could be even hypocritical. He knew that verbal expressions of love could hide a lack of the genuine article. He knew that talk can be cheap, so talk of love can be insincere. So he wrote this to the Romans. He said, love must be genuine. It must be authentic. It must be without hypocrisy. It must be sincere in both word and in deed. Let's think of it this way. Are we able to hold up our love to the microscope, to scrutiny? Can we hold up our love for the lost in our individual circles of influence that all of us have? Can we hold this love up in the midst of life, in the midst of conflict, and not detect any insincerity, not detect any inauthenticity? There's a flip side to Paul's remarks here. Many of us in the course of our Christian lives may have done a Bible study on love in the Bible. It's worth doing. But how many of us have done a study on hate? Well, I hadn't before this message, but my study of this verse led to a brief overview of hate in Scripture. Now think about this. Here's a few highlights of what I learned. In many ways, the word hate has taken on a new level of insignificance because of our common use of it. Just as love has lost a lot of its common genuine meaning, because we use the same word to describe different things of difference of different importance and different meaning. For example, we use the same word to say, I love ice cream, I love music, I love my wife, I love the Lord. All those things aren't equal, are they? But we use the same word. So hate, I think, has lost some of its meaning too. I hate liver. Ugh. Brussels sprouts. I hate the traffic. I hate this person or that thing. So it's lost some of its meaning. Here in Romans 12, 9, it means abhor, or as translated in the New, uh, New American Standard or the ESV. It's a pretty strong word. It's used only here in the New Testament. It means to hate, abhor, to detest with horror, to detest utterly. That's pretty strong, isn't it? That's a pretty strong word. It's the strongest word for hate used in the New Testament. In other places, we see the English word hate in Scripture, it can mean to love less than or to turn away from. That might be the context in which we use the word hate in some of our everyday vernacular, where I say, I hate liver or I hate the traffic. In one word search in the entire Old and New Testaments, in four different Bible versions, I found a little less, just a little under 200 verses with some form of the word hate. There were six primary things that were described using the word hate. They weren't always described with approval. In other words, this is the way it is and this is gospel truth. But sometimes they were described with clear approval. And here are those six things. There's people hating God. There's people hating each other. Usually it refers to enemies. There's people hating dishonesty or evil action or sin. There's people speaking of God hating them. Now, 
here's an example where the context doesn't validate this. It's, this is simply how people described God's actions. It's not necessarily affirming that God hated them. And then there's people hating God's law or justice or knowledge or his correction or his punishment. And then there's God hating evil action or behavior or idols or unrighteous things that are done in his name. Those are the six primary ways we see the word hate used in Scripture. The only hint of God hating anyone in Scripture is clearly tied to what they do. It's tied to their behavior. For example, we see in Psalm chapter 5, verse 5, where it says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. In Psalm 11, verse 5, it says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And then in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 8, My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She roars at me, therefore I hate her. All of these verses that we just looked at as examples are in the, New, are in the Old Testament. And the only one in which God is referring to himself, actually, it's God speaking, referring to himself as hating, is this one verse in Jeremiah. So rather than take the time to examine these passages in detail, let's ask this question. What can we learn from what lawyers call the preponderance of evidence? In other words, you stack it up real high, and this stack's way higher than this stack, okay? That is, what can we, desu- what, what can we deduce from the overwhelming number of verses that never describe God as hating people. We can debate whether or not the Word of God shows that God hates anyone per se. But He clearly hates, and this is indisputable if you look at Scripture, He clearly hates our ungodly actions. He clearly hates our sin. He hates our unrighteous, our idolatrous behavior. He hates our unholy attitudes. He hates these things. And he hates them with a fearful intensity. So what does that say? We should too. If God hates these things, we should too. And not just in others, but especially in ourselves. And we treat his word with a total lack of integrity when we try to explain away or diminish his hatred for unrighteousness, unholiness, for sin. Because when we try to explain that away or diminish that in some way, we diminish his love for us and his sacrifice for us because that's the awful cost that had to be paid because of his hatred for sin. We see Paul's theme in Romans that we just read. We see this repeated again and again in Scripture. We see it in Psalm 119, 104, where it says, "...through your precepts I get understanding." Therefore, I hate every false way. We see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. We see it in Proverbs 13, 5. The righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. And we see it in Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Think about that. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So clearly, hating, excuse me, clearly fearing the Lord involves hating what God hates. Fearing the Lord involves hating what God hates. The phrase in Proverbs chapter 13 that we just read 
a moment ago, for bring shame means literally to cause a stink. And that's quite consistent with what we read in another passage in the New Testament, in Jude, verses 21 through 23, where we read, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Why should we hate the, even the clothing that's stained by corrupted sinful flesh? For one, it says we should show mercy mixed with fear. Why should we fear? Because the clothing is stained by the stink of sin, and it might rub off on us. First the sin, and then the stink that goes with it. Now consider this. God's hate is not like our hate. It's not the vindictive, emotional hate that we often feel. It's his strong moral reaction against sin and unrighteousness. We sometimes have a hard time separating those two things, hating the sin because of a strong moral reaction against sin, nevertheless loving the sinner. But God has already demonstrated his love toward the sinner by sending his son to die. That's authentic love. That's what we need to point to, folks. That's what we need to point to, that authentic love. And this isn't easy, as we noted. It's very difficult to communicate, to communicate love to a world that doesn't know what real love is anyway. Paul puts the admonition to love genuinely and hate what is evil back to back, right here in the same verse of Scripture. We have a tendency these days to turn love into warm fuzzies. It's all about being sweet and kind and wonderful to one another. What we forget, that biblical love is always very honest about the truth. We see that even in the very famous love chapter, which we use in weddings even. But right in the middle of that, we see 1 Corinthians 13, 6, where it says, love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. But the primary truth we must communicate is the truth about what the love of God really means. It means that we are all hopelessly lost apart from Christ, but his love has offered us a way home. We can demonstrate God's love in so many ways. We can hate evil at the same time we love and cling to what is good, and this isn't an easy task, but you know what? The early church showed us that it can be done. Their culture hated them. Their culture misunderstood their beliefs. Yet the early church loved each other, they loved those around them, and the church grew. The early church grew in the midst of a culture way more difficult than the cultural things that we're facing today. As segments of the United States culture grow hostile and hateful toward Bible-believing Christians, we must take care to be proactive, as Christ was. If we're not intentional, we will be reactive falling into defensive or oppositional positions. History has taught us that such reactionism to the culture only isolates us and minimizes our impact for Christ. How does God tell us to respond when the culture turns hostile toward us? He tells us to actively live such good lives among the pagans that those who hate us cannot deny we are busy doing a lot of good. Of course, this is a reference to the passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 and 15. Let me read those. Live such good lives among the pagans 
that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. How many of you here think we're hearing a lot of ignorant talk from a lot of foolish men these days? But what does it say? We live our good deeds in their midst. Now before closing, I want to offer what I think is a very critical clarification to this. In and of themselves, our loving deeds, our good actions are not enough. Just as we recognize that the salvation continuum, that line that everybody finds themselves on, on the road to salvation, requires people who will cultivate, who will water, who will plant. That's essentially what living good lives among the pagans is doing. It's illustrating the gospel at work in our hearts. But it's not the gospel itself. At some point, the gospel has to be clearly spoken. It has to be clearly spoken presenting a clear opportunity to respond. Let's say, for example, you have a neighbor and you want to preach Christ to this neighbor using your deeds and your deeds alone. You're friendly to him. You invite him for meals and you're as good a neighbor as you absolutely know how to be. You're loving, you're kind, you're giving. In all things, you seek to display unconditional kindness towards him and to love him as you love yourself. Well, eventually... You live with this neighbor long enough, you live near him long enough, well, he passes away. Now, what have your actions preached to this man? They have preached that Christians are nice people who do good things for their neighbors. I'm sure we could find Terry Muslims who will do absolutely the same thing. My works for this neighbor have preached that niceness and kindness and morally upright behavior are what makes you a Christian. In short, they have preached that what you do makes you a Christian. Theologians would call this justification by works, and that isn't the gospel, folks. So while these good works should indeed flow from our lives as believers, and they are often a vital part of what God uses to prepare and soften a heart for saving faith, again, that's not the gospel. They adorn the gospel, they illustrate the gospel, but our niceness Our moral behavior is not the gospel. This is what we Christians have to give people that Jeremiah could only hint at prophetically. This is authentic love to share the truth of the gospel. The gospel, that really incredibly shockingly good news that what God demands from us, he provides for us. What God demands from us, he provides for us. And he has already accomplished for us. He provides the satisfaction of his demand for holiness in his own son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is the message that Jesus delights to switch places with guilty rebels like you and me, sinners. The one person who walked this earth, who deserved heaven, Jesus, instead endured the wrath of hell. So that those who deserve the wrath of hell, that's us folks, can have heaven for free. That's the gospel, folks. That's good news. There's no greater, there's no more authentic love than that. And this is what we are witnesses to. This is what, when he says, you will be my witnesses, this is what we are witnesses to, what Jesus has already done and what he has done in my heart and in your heart and in our lives.
This is what we're to share with the world around us. So absolutely, let's love authentically as Paul admonishes. It is the greatest apologetic we have. It does soften hearts. It does prepare hearts to receive the gospel. And in doing that, let's share with our circles of influence the source of that love and what he's done for us in Christ. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. We thank you that the only one who ever truly authentically loved who walked this earth with Jesus. And we thank you, Father, that he took the penalty for our sin. Lord God, we pray that in the midst of a challenging culture, we would be like Jeremiah and have courage. We would have courage to love authentically, to love without hypocrisy, Lord God, to love those who are still sinners. But Father God, we also pray that we would have boldness when the time comes that we are to speak the truth of the gospel into the lives of the people in our circles of influence. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would indeed let love be genuine in our lives, that we would indeed hate what is evil, and we would indeed cling to what is good. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Bill, for this timely word that we would love authentically and also speak winsomely the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before we're dismissed, I have a very important announcement. I should have already mentioned it earlier to prepare.